0: In this episode, I chat with Eric Gregory, senior staff data scientist currently work at Meta, with over 10 years experience. His strengths are data science experimentation and causal inference, data tools, automation, and social networks. In this episode, we take a deep dive into experimentation and causal inference, and this is a great episode for current data scientists or those looking to get into the field and specialize in causal inference and experimentation. Great to be chatting with you again, Eric. It's been a while since we talked at the last Women in Data meeting in Sacramento.
1: Yep, probably mid mid 2019 or so. Yeah, thanks for having me on
0: yeah my pleasure so i'd love to know what you've been up to in the meantime what type of problems are you currently working on in data science
1: yeah so um i'm currently a data scientist at meta formerly facebook um i've been here for like the last seven and a half years and i worked at uh, a social network before that and then like a small startup before that um my Recent focuses, and um, kind of over my whole career, have been around like data tooling, and, and automation of like data science tasks, and then also um, experimentation and in causal inference, getting more into like um, observational type causal inference questions that don't necessarily involve experiments. And then I've also done recently some stuff around uh, equitable products and uh, trying to make design products in a way that suits the needs of everybody, especially like groups that might have different needs on average. So
0: So I'm really excited to chat with you a little bit more about your work in causal inference because I haven't had a guest on the show to chat about this and I think it's such an important but interesting type of analysis. So I'd love to level set and just have you define what causal inference is and how you use this.
1: Yeah. So basically uh, bis- businesses are trying to like make decisions using analytics and data science in many cases. So they have like a set of potential options, some of which they, they know they have those options and some of which they don't. So one way data science can have um, impact is taking those options and saying, if you go this route, what's going to happen to things we care about, which might be measured by metrics. And so ultimately that involves like an inference about if if we actually do something to the system, what's going to be the outcome, and that's a that's a, ultimately it's a causal question. So uh, we often will say things like, "Well, this outcome correlates with this other outcome," and so um, and then people will rebut with, "Well, correlation isn't causation. What is causation then?" and there's a set of techniques we can try to use in many cases to to try to come up with an answer to that and come up with accurate assessments of if we do a certain thing to the system, what's going to happen to outcomes we care about. And that's what, that's what I think of as causal inference. Sometimes we have experiments for it, sometimes we don't, uh, and there's interesting techniques to talk about on both sides of that.
0: So can you provide us with a use case of how you might use this in a business setting?
1: Yeah. So um, maybe you're you're trying to decide between like, uh, you have many, many options of different experiments you might want to run and um, many different outcomes you might try to target. Perhaps you don't have any past ex- past experiments that try to adjust those things. Uh, you can try to use causal inference to say, if we target like increasing a certain sort of action on our website, um, like a click on a certain button or, um, Perhaps, like, time spent on a certain page or the number of things viewed. Uh, You can, like, look at past data you have on how people do those things. And then you can try to say the value of an additional, like, thing viewed to, like, long term usage is X1, and the value of an additional second spent is X2. And so maybe an additional thing viewed is more or less valuable than an additional second spent. Um, to try to like trade out, get a sense for what might be like the t- the valuable outcomes in your system without necessarily having run it to run experiments on it. And then you'll have to then later up do some follow- up experiments to say, okay, we designed this experiment that's going to increase the number of things viewed. Does it actually turn out to be the case that we're going to see like a lift in long term usage because of that? So
0: And you've talked before about causal loop diagrams. How would this fit into? this scenario.
1: Yeah. So when you do these like observational analyses, where you don't have an experiment run, but you're still trying to come up with like, an inference about if we do x, what's going to happen to y, the thing we care about, uh, we what you need to do in this observational context is control for basically everything that causes x and just be left with some random variation in x. Um, so there's this, like, terminology about we need we need to, to control for everything such that the only variation left over is random variation. So to decide what to control for, you have to have a sense for, like, what causes people to view things. Well, like, there's this, um, they have to have a certain amount of inventory, and they have, like, a past propensity to spend time on your website. And their inventory depends upon the things they're, like, connected to or... Um, the things they've interacted with before, uh, so these these diagrams can be a way to like just sit down and think about what are all the things that impact either my treatment um, treatment in quotes because it's not something you've actually assigned um, or your outcome, and you you just draw this diagram of how they all interrelate to one another, and um, hopefully you can articulate the whole like state of the system and of course you'll never actually like get there but you want to get like all the most important things in that system and uh, typically you want to control for all the things that cause like um, either your treatment or your outcome uh, to, to get a valid an al- a valid inference on um, how modifying your treatment might actually modify your outcome so.
0: when we're drawing these out do our own biases come in in any way or is the goal of Drawing this out to hopefully uncover our biases. You know, we talk a lot about biases and models these days. Do you see causal inference as a way to uncover it, or sometimes we're essentially finding more bias than we essentially knew what we had?
1: Yeah. So um, this is a way to lay out what your assumptions are, like very clearly. And so if you lay those assumptions out clearly, it makes it a little bit easier to see what the biases might be. And this is a common thing I see in analysis is like, um, somebody will make draw an inference and somebody else will critique it. Well, you, you didn't control for this, this thing. If you lay out your assumptions very clearly, it makes it easier to like draw those critiques. So there's this like um, article on the World Health Organization about, or by the, put out by the World Health Organization about causal loop diagrams. And their suggestion is that you get all the experts related to the system in the room. So anybody who has like some deep knowledge of the system, researchers, users, data scientists, uh, engineers, product managers, etc., uh, external researchers, and then you, you all you all work together to draw what this like system might look like. And so this is like a good way to fight the biases by like drawing about in a bunch of diverse perspectives, draw out the diagram, and then you can like try to come up with measurements that um represents the components of the diagram and then use those measurements in your analysis.
0: Great suggestion because we talk a lot how having diverse teams help to uncover biases, right? So not even just diversity from a uh, gender and ethnicity but from a practice standpoint as you mentioned, you know, bringing in people who if you're studying health, right, who are health experts bringing in the engineers, other data scientists. Uh, Do you have a trusted source of people when you're creating your causal loop diagrams that you go to and have a review and find where your biases may be?
1: Yeah, um, usually I seek out people who have been thinking about whatever system I'm studying um, for a long time or in some depth. Um, So yeah, that can be like, people who have worked on teams adjacent to the question we're we're asking. Um, We sometimes try to, like, uh, in the past, sometimes I've tried to, like, engage, like, external researchers, too, on, like, the, the topic or read lots of, like, external papers. So just try to get as much, like, information as possible from, like, very different sorts of sources.
0: So from a paper perspective, do you have some resources or papers or... Favorite authors you recommend people start to research into to learn more about this?
1: Yeah, there's this like really great book that got me deep into this. Um, this book called The Book of Why by Judea Pearl. It's a very lightweight introduction to like causal diagrams. Um, he has like some more like deep introductions to this so that are more technical as well. Um, so yeah, those are that's useful. Uh, book and then there's this book called Systems Thinking. Uh, I actually don't know the author off the top of my head. Maybe we can add that in like as a reference to the notes.
0: Yeah, we'll research that and find the author and add it to the show notes. I have actually read the book as well and don't remember <laughs> the author's name, but it is a fabulous book. Yeah. Switching gears a little bit. Also love to dive into your experience into experimentation. And in that regard, again, level setting, like how do you think of experimentation and what's your definition of experimentation from a data science context?
1: Yeah, in these um, technology contexts, which are the bulk of my experience with experimentation. um, Yeah, so basically uh, tech companies run lots and lots of experiments. That's been my experience at all of them. some like different scales, I guess, like orders of magnitude, but um, basically, what the, the reason why they do these is they're they're trying to converge to like a better like model for their users and for the company, and so they come up with ideas, they come up with implementations, and then they want to make an inference like, is this idea better than our current state? Um, does it produce better outcomes for? Um, pe- people using your products or or for um, for our company some combination of those two things is usually important um, because your company has to do okay for you to be able to like continue building products that provide value for users um, so yeah basically set up lots of these experiments and then the goal is try to just try to answer whether it's net better or not and There's lots and lots of nuances about like doing this this well um i think one of the biggest ones aside from all the setups uh like setting things up properly and uh, all the assumptions that go into inferences being valid from experimentation um a really big one is um coming up with your evaluation criteria ahead of ahead of time there's Infinitely many metrics you could look at that might you might be able to like post hoc say are good things, and um, pre specifying which ones you're really targeting is a really big mm-hmm. leverage point. And what are your counter metrics as well? So what do you, what don't what might go wrong and that you don't want to go wrong and you're going to watch out for. So I think that's probably the biggest leverage point for tech companies: specifying your objective evaluation criteria. So
0: so when it comes to evaluation criteria. There's a lot of things you can measure. How do you narrow down how many things you should measure? And do you have a recommendation in terms of, should it be three goals, five goals, ten goals? What's your best practice there?
1: Yeah, I would suggest that um, these sorts of things end up, you come up with some hierarchy of a set of metrics. And they typically revolve around the the goals of your company or like the top level things you might want to think about. And then goals of your team are like lower, lower level things. Um, but you should also keep a, uh, an eye on like the the mechanism by which you th- you're going to impact those things so um, for example like if you're um, going to like show a different type of content uh, you should you should be looking at uh, you should have some criteria around evaluating how people are interacting with those types of content and then maybe you have some like team level goal you want to think about Um in my own to target and then you've got some company level goal like long-term usage sort of thing so usually you could play narrow down to like three or four things on the positive side um, and then you always want to keep keep uh, an eye on things that could go wrong like um you break some other sort of like some other part of your websites and so um you know or like your new feature is known to uh, take away market share from some other feature in your site so um you should should, uh, add in some counter metrics for those sorts of things.
0: As you mentioned before, the experimentation process can in some ways never be ending. So how do you continue to evolve this process and also not get lost in analysis paralysis and not make real progress and insights from it?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so yeah like at some point the returns begin to to diminish on this um but i think um we're not quite there yet there's like there's a couple of like directions i think that's that i think are still like big leverage points for experimentation in technology companies right now um and one of them is like a more granular causal inference techniques so there's these uh this sort of model around potential outcomes where you actually move from looking at average, like treatment effects, like, you know, how, um, the number of active users moved in your experiment to moving to, uh, like individual level treatment effects. And so that involves like, you know, taking your test group and your control group and trying to predict for each user, what would be their outcome in test and control. And then you, instead of having this rolled up treatment effect, you know, like this individual user, our best estimate of the effect of treatment on them is a certain thing. And this is cool because it can, um, uh, from there, you can start seeing, you can start doing things like identifying demographics of like users or like past usage behaviors of users that predict them responding well or badly to your your like experiments. Um, so I think that's one leverage point that still needs to like be Productionized in like A/B testing in tech companies, lots of companies are doing this stuff already, but um, like the systems just aren't perfectly stable yet, and they're not like well developed yet. And then the other one is uh, combining the results from all your past experiments to try to to try to um, power up the results of your individual experiment you're looking at right now. So you know, as as I mentioned, you know, tech companies tend to run lots of experiments, and you can actually use that to learn something about. Um, metric relationships or, or the causal structure of a system that's really that can be really hard to learn from like single individual ones, experiments.
0: Yeah, this is really exciting. I really love the personalization aspect of it and <laughs> happy that you mentioned the production, because <laughs> I think that's always where we struggle is things come into testing and we are able to come up with some great ideas. But then how do we really productionalize um, that new innovation but I'd love to shift gears and learn a little bit about how you got to where you are today I'm guessing you don't wake up one day and just know everything about causal inference and experimentation like what were some key points along your journey that helped you develop these skills and also get into this field
1: yeah so um funny story. I wanted to be a math PhD. And my aspiration was to publish some theorem that nobody realized was useful until, you know, hundred years after I was dead or something. Um, you know, like there's, there's been a few math theorems that are famous that had this property. Um, so I didn't get into any PhD programs. And I did lots during that time I took, um, was basically unemployed and was taking the time to, you know, learn skills that might be marketable. So I did lots of online learning on, sites like Coursera and Udacity, um, and took lots of like data science related classes, learned programming from scratch, like essentially in this process. And um, I think that was one key thing is like really immersing myself in like education. Um, even though it was all a lot online, that was, I learned like a lot of really useful skills there. And then um, just applying to jobs. And then I found out these data science jobs were looking for those types of programming skills. Um, and got into like a small Silicon Valley startup. I think that can be a really good entry point for anybody trying to get into data science. Uh, you might work very long hours for relatively like low wages, but um, it can be a really good way to get started in the field. So that was really big for me. And then, um, yeah, just trying to like build like a, a network of um, collaborators at like the smaller companies worked at over time. Um, by doing really good work with them and like learning from them and contributing what I could back to them. And from that network, it, you know, can drive you to like more opportunities that you might not have had access to before. Um, and then, yeah, I think I think networking, networking within and outside of my company has been like a really positive for my career over time.
0: When you started doing your own kind of learning journey through MOOCs, how did you know where you needed to focus your skills? So a lot of people I see, you know, see that there are a lot of great classes out there and a lot of skills you can learn. How did you narrow it down in a way to make sure you stayed motivated, but focused? And do you have any secrets you could share with people on that?
1: Yeah, it was a little bit easier when I got started back in like roughly 2011, Because there wasn't a lot out there. Like Coursera was starting to really gain some foothold. And um, there was a lot of excitement about the engineering machine learning course at that time along my, all around my Facebook network. So like, that's the one I'm going to do. And um, then I just like, oh, text processing, that sounds interesting. Image processing, that sounds interesting. And then um, building a self-driving car was like the Udacity when I took, that was like Mm -hmm. really fascinating too um i at that time i was spending like eight hours a day self-studying for like i don't know a year or two so um and it was just the things that i was so passionate about like you know and enjoying the course so much that it was easy to do that and so i think um trying to find those things is like really useful and then like there's a lot of perseverance that goes into it too uh like Stuff you're just like writing some code base that just doesn't make any sense and it's not working, and like you just really have to like build down the components and say, like, okay, can I build like something that does like one really small thing of what I need to do well, and then just start building on that. So, um, yeah, some level of persistence it'll should pay off in a year or two, probably, (laughs) if you have that amount of time. So,
0: persistence is such a great recommendation because. You're doing this work on your own, and yet there's like no guarantee, right? You finish it and you're gonna get the job of your dreams or learn all the skills that you want. But your story really is proof that like, if you stick to it a little bit every day over time, you really will see the results. How long, whether it's one year, two years, three years, you know, that's up to the individual. So you provided some advice for people to get their footing in a data science position by working for a tech startup as a great way to put in some long hours, maybe some low pay, (laughs) really provide that grunt work and pay it forward. But for those who are interested with a long-term goal of moving into like a FANG company, or I don't know if they call it MANG now, (laughs) but essentially a high-tech company, what advice do you have people to get into that field?
1: Yeah. um, So, yeah, I think, uh, you know, these can be pretty good companies to work with and for for some people who have certain goals uh, and there's like costs and benefits to working at companies like these. So I just want to say, like, it's not necessarily like honestly, like the ultimate goal, like in and of itself, some people might really enjoy working at small startups where you can have lots of quick immediate impact. Um, But as far as getting into um, these companies, if that's like your large aspiration, um, like uh, I'd be remiss to not mention that I think that like, there is some component of it that like um, for university graduates, revolves around where you went to school and there's like this innate level, you know, like uh, privilege you might have like that, might might put you in those situations disproportionately. Um, Like your past economic background and stuff might, influence the schools you go to and then those schools like influence your connections and then you have connections to the tech companies already if you don't have those connections necessarily um yeah i think i I think it's all about trying to build those connections and at these like smaller companies for example these startups or like your school network um you might you might know lots of people so you want to stay in contact with them and you want to like um you want to give a good good impression by like doing good work. So I, I think that's, that's really important. Make lots of connections, do good work, help people with their projects and um, build on their projects. Um, it is like a really good way to, to build those connections. And then all of those people will move into other companies. Some of them will move into big tech and then you'll have that reputation built out. So.
0: Great advice. Everyone talks a lot about networking and how that's important but i love that you took it a layer deeper by yes form the connection but then do good work to help them because that's really where you're going to build that bond and relationship reputation that when they move to a new company they'll remember you and either give you a call and say hey i'm over here you want to come over here or i'm happy to provide you a reference so as we wrap up today I have a couple of rapid fire questions for you. So they're either a quick question or fill in the blank. Um, but if you're ready, be can start. Sounds great. All right. So song you currently have on repeat.
1: Uh, the wheels on the bus. Because <laughs> okay. uh, we have guess, a toddler.
0: <laughs> yep, I was going to say, you must have a young one in your house. I just read yeah. today that Baby Shark, became the most listened to um, song on YouTube at like 10 billion. And the comment below it was like, parents see, they think that's low, <laughs> right? so.
1: Yeah, so there's this Discover Weekly feature on Spotify and all the kids songs kind of destroyed all my recommendations personally. <laughs> um, but I usually listen to that a lot. So usually right now, if I want to listen to something, I'll like search the artist name on Spotify and then listen to the, this is artists kind of playlist. So that's that's what I tend to listen to a lot. Nice.
0: So back to the questions, favorite place you have traveled?
1: Um, probably like uh, Japan for my honeymoon with my wife. So that was really, it was really different. I, I'd been to Europe before. It was more different from here than Europe was. And um, I, I really enjoyed, um, a lot of the cultural, especially, and also the food in Japan,
0: so. (laughs) Okay, this is a fill-in-the-blank. Happiness is?
1: For me, it's running. I love Um, that. Yeah, I love just going on runs and just spacing out and getting some good exercise.
0: Yes, nothing better to clear the mind. Okay, in the next five years, I hope to?
1: Have some positive impact on the, the world, so. Uh, that's like my theme of my growth right now is like trying to find ways to like have direct positive impact on on uh, you know my lo- my home for example like how do I help my community? So
0: I love it, and I'm sure you'll find some ways to measure it and make sure you have evaluation criteria. So I'm excited to see what you do. Exactly. Last question to me: curiosity is
1: asking too many questions, like, so I think. That's like,
0: perfect, <laughs> yeah. I love it. Well, thanks Eric so much for coming on the show today. Um, if people want to stay connected with you and learn more about your work, what's the best way for them to connect with you?
1: Yeah, please reach out to me on LinkedIn and.
0: Will too. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you everyone for tuning in and listening in. I hope you all stay curious and creative and we will chat again soon, my friends. If you're looking for more resources to further your data career or find your tribe, we encourage you to become a member at womenindata.org. See you on the other side.